From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I speak with Professor Dean Smith of High Point University about the Civil War and related matters stemming from the recent remarks made by White House Chief of Staff, retired General John Kelly. Why does America's greatest crisis remain a point of controversy? That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. A prominent church in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, where George Washington worshipped it's historic, of yeah, course, so and Robert E. Lee. They decided yeah. to pull the plaques um, memorializing both George Washington mm-hmm. and Robert E. Lee because they want the church to be inclusive and be considered more tolerant. What is your reaction to that type of attempt to pull down little yeah. markers of history? Well, history is history, um, and uh, there's certain things in history that uh, were not so good, and other things were very, very good. I think I, I think we make a mistake, though, and, and as a society, and certainly as uh, as individuals, when we take what is today accepted as right and wrong, and go back 100, 200, 300 years, uh, or or more, and say what those you know what Christopher Columbus did was wrong, um, you know, 500 years later. Uh, it's inconceivable to me that you would take what we, we think now and apply it back then. I think it's just very, very dangerous. And it, it shows you what, uh, how much of a, of a lack of appreciation of history and what history is. Uh, I would tell you that, that Robert E. Lee was an honorable man. Uh, he was a man that uh, gave, up, uh, gave up his country to fight for his state, which in 150 years ago was more important than country. It was always loyalty to state first back in those days. Uh, now we're, it's different today, uh, but the, 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 the lack of an ability to compromise uh, led to the Civil War, and uh, men and women of good faith on both sides made their stand where their conscience uh, had them make their stand. Be pulling down the- that was White House Chief of Staff, retired General John Kelly, speaking with Fox News' Laura Ingle. Kelly's remarks caused a firestorm among many historians. America's greatest crisis, the Civil War, continues to be a cauldron of controversy 152 years after General Robert E. Lee surrendered to General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. Was it a lack of compromise that led to the Civil War? Was it slavery? Was it states' rights? Or were there other factors that necessitated the deaths of more than 600,000 Americans, or 2% of the population. To grapple with these questions and others, I'm happy to have Professor Dean Smith join me today. Professor Smith teaches at High Point University with a focus on the history of free expression and evolution of First Amendment law in America. Professor Dean Smith, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you for having me on, Byron. When you first heard General Kelly's remarks about the Civil War, I know this is some of the uh, some of the work that you do. Well, I'm curious, what went through your mind? Well, my my initial reaction first was just to roll my eyes. Uh, it's certainly 
a kind of claim that is uh, old and tired um, and has been beaten down and beaten back more times than I can count by scholars and people who are you know, study the Civil War era uh, by experts of every stripe, including, by the way, there's a YouTube video that was done by the head of the um, either the West Point or the Naval War College, in which he explains in no uncertain terms that the Civil War was about slavery. So it's just a very old and tired argument, and it's surprising to hear someone of his position and also his education, and he's from Boston, by the way, uh, making that argument. And it's an argument that dovetails so closely um, with even the current white supremacist movement. Now, can you conceive, just momentarily giving General Kelly the benefit of the doubt, could you even conceive of a compromise that did not include the preservation of slavery uh, and along with the spread that would have kept the Confederacy from secession? Is there, is there such an animal out there? Uh, no, there wasn't, because even on the eve of the Civil War, there was a final attempt made, the Crittenden Compromise of 1860, in which it was essentially the northern states promising forevermore never to challenge slavery in the slave states. I mean, they were literally saying, fine, fine, you can have slavery forever if you will just not secede. But that wasn't a good enough compromise. Now, obviously, you, along with many other historians, were, you know, have uh, been critical of um, um, General Kelly's comments. You know, know, the the piece he talked about... um, General Robert E. Lee, uh, siding with the state of Virginia over the federal government. Um, Would it be fair to say, while you may not agree with it, I may not agree with it, there was a school of thought where uh, one state at the time was a greater importance than their country, per se. Is that that accurate or not? Uh, Again, it's the way he positioned it is quite misleading. And so, of course, we do know, remember that geography and slow transportation played a role in this. It was why, for example, when we created the constitutional system, um, starting with the Articles of Confederation, this was the idea in um, uh, in 1781, we wanted more power at the state level than at the federal level because the idea was that the state governments were closer to the people and therefore they could be more responsive to the people. Most people in that era era never left their state. Most people in that era never even left their hometown. So yes, there was a lot of fealty uh, to one's uh, home state. But that, as historians we know, and many of us have demonstrated and talked about, was not what the people themselves said who were involved at the time, right? So we had people who were parts of the Confederacy who said flat out that it was about slavery. There just was no question that it was about slavery. Uh, I would say now, uh, to, to pose the, 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 the contrarian argument, some, someone might say to you, well, uh, you know, P- Professor Smith, you know, to be fair, you know, we are a post-Civil War uh, society, along with the Reconstruction Amendments, in that before the Civil War, the United States was a plural noun. After the Civil War, it became singular. That's when 
immigrants made this a destination spot. How do you respond to that? Well, I, I understand what you're saying about we often find in when we're doing our primary research and historical documents, um, it was very common back then to talk about, you know, the several states or these several states. And, we, and, and that idea was still, you know, the idea from the Articles of Confederation that we would be a loose confederation and not too tightly wound. But that all changed in 1787 with the drafting of the Constitution, which was ratified in 1788 and went into force in 1789. So the Constitution that we live under, the Constitution of 1789, already began the project of binding the states together into one unified whole. And so that project um, predates by many, many decades um, the Civil War, which, which sought to break apart that union. You know, one of the things that, that that sort of mystifies me, you touched on it already about the Civil War uh, being about uh, slavery. I, um, at least at least uh, the reason for secession was definitely about slavery. Um, but yet it, it, there's a lot of data that, obviously that, that substantiates that claim. I just find it hard to believe anyone in the 21st century with a modicum of historical appreciation could suggest anything other than that. As you mentioned, General Kelly, you know, well-educated. How do you get there, in your, in your view? I'm asking you to speculate, I know, but how do you get there? Well, I want to I try to answer that from a couple of different angles. So in, in looking specifically at what he said, this thing about, you know, it was a lack of compromise. So I want to I first just push against that a little bit. When I think about compromises and slavery, this nation was built on compromises. We compromised at the very beginning by building in the three compromises that were in the Constitution itself, the three-fifths compromise, the 20-year rule, and the fugitive slave clause. So those were all compromises made to the southern states who had threatened to walk out of the convention. They had threatened – they even talked – it was so bad during, while they were trying to draft the um, Constitution, there was even talk that, well, maybe we wouldn't be one country. Maybe we should be two countries. So there was already – we see that dynamic in American politics already of southern states holding the northern states hostage and saying, we're not going to give you what you want unless you give us what we want. And the whole first part of our history from the Constitution itself through 1860 on the eve of the war was nothing but compromises to try to uh, calm the or appease the Southerners. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, the Missouri Compromise, the Second Missouri Compromise. We have the gag rule in Congress. People in the early uh, 1800s, members of Congress who were against slavery, actually had to agree to a gag rule and said that they would promise that they would never bring up the issue on the Senate floor. I mean, what kind of compromise is that? The Compromise of 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Act was one big compromise. And then finally, as I said, the Crittenden Compromise proposal of 1860 promised to give them everything that they wanted. So I don't know how anyone can go on national television and say that there was a lack of compromise. Uh, well, then why do you think um, 157 years since the Civil War concluded we can't have a collective understanding on the origins of America's greatest crisis. 
Well, first of all, I mean, part partly there's a political part of this, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute, but partly we're human beings, and we don't like to face ugly truths sometimes. Because if we admit that the Civil War was fought over slavery, I mean, and that was a hell of a crisis, more than 600,000 people dead. So we must have been fighting over something pretty awful. And I think that, you know, for a long time, we haven't wanted to, many people haven't wanted to look in the mirror. We haven't wanted to really look unflinchingly with open eyes um, at the slavery era. We as historians are used to it, and we take for granted, and we get frustrated when other people won't uh, look at the past with clear eyes and instead want to um, put a, a veil of nostalgia over it. So let's all go watch Gone with the Wind one more time, right? But um, so we don't want to, as a, as, a, as a human matter, we don't want to look at something that we did that was so ugly. It's Look, it's, it's why we should be able to relate to the Germans. The Germans have done a much better job than we have since World War II in looking unflinchingly and grappling with their past. We have not done that yet after more than 150 years. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Professor Dean Smith of High Point University. Um, Professor Smith, based on the data, is there any way one can offer legitimate historical analysis, since you mentioned slavery already, um, that doesn't put slavery at the forefront? I mean, is there any, I mean, is there any way uh, states' rights, interposition, nullification, Tenth Amendment, is there any way to put anything other than slavery up front? No. I mean, that's the, the long and the short of it is no. I mean, the work's already been done. The history has been done. The primary source research has been done. Um you and I can probably quote all afternoon from people who were there at the time who said openly that it was about slavery and preserving slavery. So, I, and, and, oh, and another, and I think that you're familiar with this in your writings, it's also the case of the dog that didn't bark. When you go back and look at the primary source material, they weren't talking about states' rights. They weren't talking about the Tenth Amendment. Those arguments came later. Do you agree? No, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think um, – I, I know that seven of the 11 um, states' articles of secession expressly mentioned slavery. I don't think no article of secession actually mentioned states' rights or Tenth Amendment. Yep. So what we see, um, if we fast-forward a little bit, uh, a couple more decades after the end of the Civil War, we have people beginning to make these arguments, the states' rights, the Tenth Amendment argument. Um, we see those arguments starting to bubble up um, in the, let's say, by the end of the 19th century. And it's interesting when you look at where some of those, the genesis of those types of arguments. In fact, the roots of what General Kelly said on the radio the other day date to late 19th century, early 20th century, and there really were two two main sources. One one source was evangelical Christians, and there were some um, well-known uh, evangelicals like um, R. L. Dabney. He was a Southern Presbyterian theologian, and he did a lot of that early groundwork in developing those ideas. And also very, very openly um, talking about 
slavery was actually a positive good. It helped Africans by bringing African savages to the Gospels and introducing them to Jesus Christ. These arguments also began developing these arguments also about uh, the Africans were actually better off under slavery because they had clothes and food and they were taken care of, right? And so we see some of those arguments starting to happen, picked up by another unexpected sort of group, maybe not so unexpected, um, Daughters of the Confederacy. And in the early 20th century, the Daughters of the Confederacy did a lot to advance and spread these types of arguments. They were, by the way, a main force in erecting so many of these Confederate statues that are at the center of controversy today. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking that these monuments went up right after the war, but they didn't. Many of them went up in the 1920s, um, funded by the Daughters of the Confederacy, and that's exactly the case with the one in downtown Winston-Salem. It was paid for by the Daughters of the Confederacy, and it went up in the 1920s. So this is long, long after the Civil War is over, and it's long after the people who were actually alive at the time who could tell us they were closer to the history what the war was about. And so what we had essentially in the late 19th and early 20th century was an awful lot of myth-making. Hence the lost cause. Would that be correct? Yes. Um, since, since since you mentioned it, I'll I was going to ask you later, but I'll ask you now. Um, how do you think um, collectively we ought to negotiate the monument, the Confederate monuments? I'm I'm torn, um, ser- seriously conflicted about it. Um, so, as a as a historian, and one who I, my livelihood relies on artifacts. My livelihood relies on old documents and old books and old objects and the preservation of those things and caring about those things enough to preserve them. And so, like, for example, when I look at a city like Winston-Salem and my heart weeps for all of the wonderful buildings that were torn down during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It's history that we can never get back. And so um, I look at this move to tear down the monuments, and as a historian, I cringe because there's a 1984 aspect to this, right, that we're going to send this down the memory hole, and we're going to make history go away because we're uncomfortable with that history. And so we're just going to erase it. And I don't think that that's how the world works. The other problem, I think, of that of trying to erase the history is it means that we're not grappling with it. And so in thinking more in terms of um, wanting to think of um, social and political progress, we have to grapple with the history. We can't just erase it. We have to grapple with it. We have to have ongoing, never-ending conversations about it. And I think erasing it doesn't work. Are we missing a teachable moment here? Yes, very much so, because what has happened is because we live um, in an era of partisan entrenchment, when both sides, and and notice I am pointing the finger at both sides here, both sides have dug in their heels and hardened their positions so much that 
they talk past each other, will not talk to each other, and compromise has become a dirty word. Not the compromise that General Kelly had in mind, but but legitimate compromise. Legitimate compromise, which is is, um, discovering through discourse, through political discourse, what the positions even are, what the various positions even are, cataloging them, and then discussing which positions seem to be the better argument or the better idea. Then we could, instead of like happened in Durham, now see, I'm, now, let me talk from a First Amendment scholar standpoint for a moment. What those people did in Durham in tearing down that argument was they, they were no friends to the First Amendment, and the First Amendment was not their friend either, right? The First Amendment does not protect or condone destruction of government property. That's called vandalism, right? Remember the word, the important word in the First Amendment is peaceable, to peaceably assemble, right? And so to me, that type of what they, they called speech isn't speech, and it certainly is not productive speech that helps move the public dialogue along. Well, on that note, though, what would you say to some of, some of those individuals and supposing they they came back at you and said, well, Professor Smith, you know, there's a law that said we can't have this mood. We can't have that teachable moment, that constructive dialogue um, that, that you're offering because the North Carolina legislature won't allow these monuments to be moved. How would you respond to that? Well, now that's an interesting point that you bring up. And so the North Carolina legislature passed a law that said that, uh, uh, remember, they only have control over uh, government bodies like local governments and county governments, that they can't do anything to move the monuments, right? I guess it's like they have to ask permission from the state legislators in Raleigh. And it's an interesting um, – it acts almost as a gag rule. If you think about this in First Amendment terms, if you've got a, a local – let's say uh, – a town. I don't, I'll just make one. Up. Let's just say Cary, North Carolina. Let's say there was a, a monument, and the town had some discussion about it at their at their weekly meetings, and they decided to have a vote on it, and they voted to go ahead and take the statue down and move it to um, a park, say, or maybe they were going to move it to donate it to a museum or something like that. This law, and so that, that says something, right? They have made a decision about what message they want to send or not send, and the state legislature is literally creating a kind of gag rule because they're taking away people's voices, right? They're taking away choice. So we have two problems here. Um, and, And by the way, this is of a piece with several pieces of legislation that this legislature Um, has adopted that bother me as a First Amendment scholar. For example, what is known as the ag-gag rule. That is, um, barring any revelations about what goes on on factory farms in terms of, for example, when PETA and activists want to report on the treatment of animals. That is now a crime in North Carolina, right? Or another rule that says, it's a crime to reveal the uh, methods and uh, uh, chemicals used in fracking, hydraulic fracturing for oil. That is now a crime. And so they have also made it um, almost a criminal act for a town or locality 
to make a decision to take down a statue, which is odd coming from people who say that they are for states' rights, local control, and home rule. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess, I guess I guess what's interesting is that, and the reason I posed that initially posed that question to you is because you, being a um, uh, First Amendment scholar, and I. Um, and you had mentioned about peacefully assembling. Uh, at the same time, if you take away any tools to peacefully assemble, at some point the potential for anarchy exists, does it not? That's exactly right, and that's why this is called um, the safety valve function of the First Amendment, right? This is a very old philosophy. It comes to us from Benedict Spinoza in the 1600s. He was a Jewish Portuguese philosopher, um, and in his Tractatus Theologico Politicus of 1670, um, he talked specifically about um, one of the important roles of freedom of speech, that it is in the government's own self-interest for its own self-preservation to allow people to speak freely, even angrily, in order to vent frustrations and anger any attempts to suppress that speech and force it underground simply simply builds up more anger and resentment, and sometimes that anger can explode into revolution or, as you said, anarchy or overthrow of the government. Right. So it's in the government's self-interest not to try to gag people. Um, when I had the privilege of coming over to your um – you were speaking your class um, several weeks ago. Um, you introduced me to a historical timeline about the American narrative, and I wonder if um, you give us a moment if you would share that timeline because I want to I want to ask some questions around that if you would. Yeah, yeah, I would. It's um. So I'm going to just riff on this for a minute, and you tell me when to stop riffing. All right. So. This class is, as you as you discovered when you came over for a visit, and my students are still talking about that class. It was a really wonderful experience for them. Is a history of America, by as told through the history of race relations in America, and all of that is seen through or filtered through the eyes of the law, right? And so, one of the things that the class proposes is that the story of race relations in America is the story of America, that those two things are melded together. They're inseparable. They're the same thing. And one thing that we demonstrate in the class is that there are certain moments where we have some legal change, a legal juncture that ends one historical era and begins another. And so just broadly speaking, we could think about from the beginning of slavery in 1619 to the end of slavery in 1865. So that was the slavery era. And then we had Reconstruction from 1865 to 1896, during which time we really did have real black progress in this country, including in the South. You know, African Americans entering the professions, entering business, entering politics, um, entering the state legislature even. Then we had a tragic juncture, and that was the Plessy v. Ferguson case of 1896, in which the court introduced, Supreme Court introduced the idea of separate but equal. It gave legal sanction to segregation. It gave a green light to states and localities to use the law to actually create discrimination. 
So thank you, Supreme Court, for that helping hand. And so we get the Supreme Court is really to blame for the Jim Crow era. So we get the Jim Crow era runs all the way through Brown v. The, v. the Board in 1954, and it strikes down Plessy, and it ends separate but equal. And I call this the desegregation era. We're just broadly announcing that we don't like segregation. We want that to end. And I think of this, and I and I know from talking to you that you think of this as civil rights era part one. Yeah, right. right. 50, 54 to 64. So that's our that iconic era with the marches and the and Bull Connor and the dogs being sicked on the marchers and the lunch counter sit-ins. So it culminates with the March on Washington in 63 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, King's great achievement. And we could also pair that with the Voting Rights Act of 65 as that pinnacle moment. And we begin Civil Rights Part Two, which I call the integration era. So now it's not just that we want to get rid of segregation, but we want to actually try to actively promote integration, which is what the Civil Rights Act did. And then so, so 1971, we get that important case that a lot of people don't know about, but I think it's an important case that I wish people did, out of Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools. And that's when the Supreme Court upheld the idea, the constitutionality, of using the big yellow school buses to integrate the schools by moving children around. Um, this is the beginning of the affirmative action era. We're going to actually use the law and the power of government to take affirmative steps to bring people together. And that period, unfortunately, lasted only seven years. And then the next juncture is the Backey v. Board of Regents case of 1978 that launches the reactionary era. And that is people reacting against the progress made in the civil rights era. That case was about striking down racial quotas for college students in public universities. And so we, we have that case sort of launching the reactionary era, and that lingered. That fight went on for a long time. And then I think the tide changed in 2000. And that was the – we were back at Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools, and I call it the CMS case, the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Schools case, in which people challenged using busing for integration, and this time the courts sided with the angry white folk. And so the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals said, no, you can't use busing to integrate the schools, and within five years we saw the schools resegregated. And I call that the era of partisan retrenchment. Both sides have really dug in in this fight. And finally, if you bear with me one more second, I thought it couldn't get – I thought that was the era we lived in until 2013, and then it got worse. And that's when we saw the voting rights case make its way to the Supreme Court in 2013, and the Supreme Court gutted it essentially by striking down as unconstitutional the enforcement mechanism for the Voting Rights Act. And so immediately – we saw all sorts of legislative mischief with creating these voting ID laws and all sorts of mischievous gerrymandering based on race, and that was also thanks to the Supreme Court. And I, so I call finally, Byron, this era that we're living in, the anti-anti-discrimination era. And for those keeping score at home after that long timeline, the uh, voting rights case uh, that Professor Smith was talking about was Shelby County versus Holder. 
Yeah, there we go. I got it. Um, in your view, what's the overall impact of this of this timeline that you've beautifully constructed historically? First of all, it helps us not be so totally depressed because we can at least see progress. And I, I chuckle when I say that, but but it's true. It's true. I I because I know that behind every one of these legal junctures and behind every one of these legal eras, there were people. There were brave people. There were good-hearted people. There were people of goodwill, of lots of different colors and creeds and religions. Um, working toward some of these milestones, right? The sad story that we see, of course, is that they are always fighting a headwind. And we're fighting a headwind today in 2017. The anti-anti-discrimination agenda um, is people who are not only do they resent efforts to help minorities, not just African Americans, but we could be talking about socioeconomically, we could be talking about ethnically, religiously. Uh, they seem to resent efforts to help minorities in any way and actively work against it. There's a case out of Texas headed to the Supreme Court that's just like Backy. And, and it's a, a, a white student who was not uh, selected for the law school, and she's blaming it on race. She's calling it reverse discrimination. And so it's a challenge to Backy because, remember, Backy said you can't have racial quotas, but you can use race as one factor to achieve diversity. And that's where the word diversity came into our political discourse was because of the Backy case. But so the people now in this current case, even Backy isn't good enough. They want the court to even strike down the second prong of Backy and say that you can't consider race at all. You know, but when I listened to your timeline and your, your last answer, you know, I was thinking that at each point on that timeline, you, you have factions that are diametrically opposed to each other, whatever the issue du jour was at the time. And that, in our 21st century discourse, has not seemed to let up. And and I'll just throw out one example. We're right now, while we're taping this, in the midst of the controversy between the Alabama senator candidate, um, uh, former Supreme Court Justice Roy Moore, who's had allegations of sexual harassment. And you have supporters, not all, but some supporters saying, um, yeah, what he did may be bad, but the the only alternative would be to uh, vote for a Democrat as if, Child molestation and Democrats can even be compared. I mean, that seems to be where the discourse is. I wonder how you saw that. Well, that, and I'm borrowing here. I think you're exactly right. And it's interesting that you bring up the Roy Moore thing, which doesn't have anything to do with slavery, um, um, in the context of this discussion, because I'm going to suggest in a second that there is actually a little indirect connection. Um, so the first part of it is the, on the political side. I'm borrowing from uh, my old First Amendment law teacher at Yale, Jack Balkan. He and Sandy Levinson, his writing partner, coined the phrase um, partisan retrenchment to describe the political atmosphere in the country starting in 2000. So we had the bitterly fought presidential race. We had the Supreme Court actively taking sides in that 
presidential race and deciding it for the country. Um, and then, of course, 9-11 happened, and which helped speed things up. So we have this hardening of positions. And we have politicians literally saying out loud, like in interviews and on television, compromise is a dirty word. We'll never compromise, right? And then we, when Obama came in in 2008, that partisan retrenchment, digging in the heels on both sides, will never compromise, of course got even worse. Um, of course, I believe there was a racial element or racial dimension to that. Um, but so the two sides dug in even more. We even had Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, um, go on television in an interview and say our number one goal is mm -hmm. to is to propose anything that this president proposes. So it was out in the open, partisan retrenchment. We're not going to talk to you. We don't want to hear your view. We already know what we think. Well, right? We don't even want to talk. Professor Smith, I want to jump in. I want, I want to ask you a question because when you're saying that, not in a linear sense, but would but could you not make some of the arguments you just made that partisan retrenchment? Could you not see elements of that in Dred Scott fifty what eighteen fifty seven? Well, sure you could. Um, so you saw, you know, in Dred Scott, the the position on the of course the the entire case was about um, protecting slavery, right? And so the court which contained slave holders, by the way, including the Chief Justice, Tawney, um, they needed to come up with a rationale. What was the rationale that they were going to use um, to defend slavery? And so they came up with an airtight argument, right, that the other side, the other side of this equation, it, it would leave them without an argument. They said, well, an African-American is not a citizen, and a citizen doesn't have any rights, and therefore a citizen, uh, somebody without rights, can't sue for their rights in a federal court because they have none, right? And then, of course, the court uh, had to, to go further than that and be a little bit spiteful and say, and no descendants of African Americans will ever be citizens. Um, so they had to try to create an airtight argument because they didn't want to talk to the other side and make any kind of compromise. They wanted, you know, it, it was all about winning, all about winning, and it had to be winner take all. And that's how I feel about our politics today. So, so I guess um, what your narrative proves, I mean, you you um, you rightly point out that there's been these seeds of hope in your timeline, uh, but there's also been um, a recycle a recycling of arguments. Also, would that be fair? Oh yes, <laughs> it's a, we hear the same arguments over and over because, of course, in in Dred Scott, we had to hear the argument on on. For, for preserving slavery was African Americans are not humans. African Americans are something less. And so we heard, of course, that uh, in a lot of uh, racist or even just slightly or veiled uh, racist comments um, on through the Reconstruction era, on through the Civil Rights era, and still today in some of the harsher um, uh, statements or rhetoric that we hear coming from the alt-white and the white nationalist uh, groups. But what's interesting today is that we we go through – if you look at the timeline, it's interesting. You can picture moments when those types of statements went underground and moments when they broke out into the open, moments when they went underground and moments when they broke out into the open. And it's 
odd that we're living in a time in 2007 that we're having another moment where some of that rhetoric, that rhetoric to try to create the other as a kind of enemy, is out in the open. It's out in the open in politics right now, which is very strange. You didn't think you would hear that since the, like, you have to go back to the 60s and listen to Bull Connor and those folks who were opposed to the civil rights movement. But we're hearing a lot of the same rhetoric today. Professor Dean Smith, High Point University, sir, I want to thank you for joining me today on The Public Morality. Thank you so much, uh, Byron, for having me, and we'd love to have you here at High Point University again. That was Professor Dean Smith. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. Before that, here is an excerpt from Vice President Lyndon Johnson's 1963 Memorial Day speech at Gettysburg. In this hour, it is not our respective races which are at stake. It is our nation. Let those who care for their country come forward, north and south, white and Negro, to lead the way through this great moment of challenge and decision. The Negro says, now. Others say, never. But the voice of responsible Americans, the voice of those who died here, and the great man who spoke here, their voices say, together. There is no other way. until justice is blind to color, until all education is unaware of race, until opportunity is unconcerned with the color of men's skins, emancipation will be a proclamation, but emancipation will not be a fact. To the extent that the proclamation of emancipation is not fulfilled in fact, to that extent, we shall have fallen short of assuring freedom to the free. And now for my closing remarks. America is going through a social growth spurt, another moment where our values seek to align closer with our practice. What began with leaks alleging that movie mogul Harvey Weinstein engaged in sexual harassment, sexual assault, and rape has become a tsunami of charges cutting across a wide swath of individuals linked together by power and influence. Ironically, sexual harassment and the associated behaviors has become one of America's best examples of diversity. High-profile men of varying races, ethnicities, 
political orthodoxies, and sexual orientation coalesce around the notion that one's humanity is not applicable if that person is the target of their desires. It is a moment where behavior once camouflaged and coddled in the darkness of the status quo is uncomfortably brought to the light. If, as former President Lyndon Johnson stated, power is where power goes, sexual harassment can therefore set up shop in the White House as well as the corner grocery store. Power is the aphrodisiac that makes the unacceptable permissible. Perceived power is often aided by legions willing to assume the role of codependency. Yet, when these despicable deeds are brought to light, many within the codependency delegation take on the role of Captain Raynaud from the movie Casablanca. They're shocked, shocked to know that illegal gambling has been going on moments before receiving their winnings. Throughout American history, women have endured in relative silence mistreatment in the workplace, at parties, or simply walking down the street. There has never been a point in our history where women have been immune to such proclivities of varying degrees. Sexual harassment is practically a rite of passage for many women, similar to men of color, black and Latino men in particular, who know many will likely be stopped at some point by the police simply because they fit the description. Those not afflicted by such behaviors may not understand why it would take so long before the allegations would be made public, sometimes decades, if at all. America has long been a country where the powerful are granted the benefit of the doubt, and more perceived power equates to more benefit. On issues of human dignity, the natural impulse of the status quo is to seek ways to lessen the severity. Pick any historical issue involving human dignity, And there is invariably a narrative offered by the status quo suggesting it is not as onerous as our contemporary lens might suggest. Though the focus has largely been on high-profile men, sexual harassment is more ubiquitous because it is a dynamic rooted in perceived power. Therefore, it is important that the powerful and influential are called out for their behavior because it can serve as a deterrent for those who may otherwise be powerless but emboldened nevertheless by perceived power based on gender. But as we've recently witnessed, courage can be contagious. What's different is the victims are increasingly unwilling to accept the a la carte manner these cases have been traditionally administered. For a growing number of women, silence equals betrayal. Betrayal that the status quo has always relied. Besides victims courageously telling their stories, they must also have allies willing to stand with them, denouncing this nefarious practice. It is not enough for fathers of daughters to be concerned. What about fathers of sons or men with no children? If power is where power goes, isn't it time that power related to sexual harassment move in a different direction? Is that not the path toward a more perfect Union? The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. 
The Public Morale is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.